0: Greetings to all of you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, This is going to be very interesting. Um, If you wonder why I'm coming in this way, I just want to let us know that I'm under quarantine. And when we use the word quarantine, you know what that means. So you can keep us in prayers as a family. And uh, so today for uh, this morning, uh, for God's word, I want to uh, talk about this topic called the presence of God. I want to begin like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Ever wondered why? Now, I'm surprised that my curious son, Johan, has not asked me this question yet, although he has asked me this in various different formats. But all the more, have you been through an existential crisis and asked yourself this question, why did God created all of this reality that we see, and, some of, and sometimes this question comes up in the light of all the problems that we face personally, as well as what we watch in the world. Now, of course, in Genesis, you don't get a very explicit answer as to why he did that, but there are some hints and pointers for us to consider. One sure shot by way of elimination We are very sure that God did not create this world because he needed anything. He did not create us because he lacked something. Since God is self-sufficient, we can eliminate that as a reason. So why did God create everything? There appears to be several reasons. But the story in Genesis 2 is very important. And that's the pointer. There in the Garden of Eden, you get a picture of what God intends in creation. God coming down, if you remember, being with his creation, walking with them, talking to them in the cool of the day. What we simply term as fellowship. So one of the reasons that God created us is to have fellowship with us. He did not again have to have fellowship with us, but he wanted to and he chose to have fellowship with us. He wanted to be present with his creation. But God's presence was disrupted, isn't it? It was disrupted by human sin. And therefore, this fellowship that existed was broken. And as the story of the Bible unfolds, there's really two halves to this brokenness. On the one hand, we have the fact that God is holy, that He is completely flawless, absolutely pure. We heard that this morning. And on the other half is our human sin. And it is our sin, it is this sin that separates us from this holy God. So you have the strong tension. And so from a very overall perspective, across scripture, the the word of God or scripture becomes a record of this tension. How a holy God deals with human sin in order to restore his full presence with his creation just like in Genesis chapter 2. You know, in a nutshell, that is the story of the Bible. It is a redemption story. You know, for those of you who are new and uh, joining us for maybe the first time today, we as a church are on, are on a series called The Whole Council of God, that we are covering about 52 plus major stories of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. So far, over this year, we have already covered the creation. We have covered the fall, which was in Genesis chapter three. We covered Noah and the flood. We covered the Abrahamic covenant. We covered the life of Joseph. We covered Moses and the 10 plagues. And last week, we covered the 10 commandments. Today, we will cover this topic called the presence of God, exposed through the story of the tabernacle, where we see God's desire to be present with Moses and his people. So the Exodus story so far, you know, God's story for mankind has really been fascinating, isn't it? For the willful disobedience of man, we saw God launching his redemption through an unconditional covenant with Abraham, which had three major components. If you remember, it is land, people, and worldwide blessings. So till an ethnic group is formed, really there is no point of a land, isn't it? It's just illogical. So the story of Joseph and his family no, eventually settling down in Goshen in Egypt might be seen as trivial or happenstance, but remember it is that place where the small tribe, 70 people that began, went to about 2 million people in a span of about 400 years. Of course, the pharaohs kicked the bucket. Many pharaohs changed over the years and eventually the great contributions done by Joseph were forgotten and uh, the children of Israel were oppressed and they were subject to slavery. They cried out to God and God hears them and God then launches this mission to redeem them from Egypt through Moses, somebody who was raised in the palace, but a Hebrew. And now a fugitive that Egypt was on the lookout for. You know, to cut the story short, we saw that it took 10 plates for the Pharaoh to finally let the children of Israel go. Or we'll talk about stubbornness, isn't it? She does not stop there. Even when the approval to leave was given, Pharaoh again changed his mind and decided to pursue them. And that's when the children of Israel experienced the miraculous parting of the Red Sea. And Yahweh became their deliverer and their salvation. So for those of you who have not been part of any session, you are covered in about two, three minutes on the story so far. So the Hebrews then eventually traveled through the desert, experiencing much provisions and now arrive at Mount Sinai, which is God's holy mountain. It is here that uh, they received the 10 commandments, which was covered last Sunday by Tobin. Now, as a summation of the covenant, Exodus 6 7 reveals what's what's God's what, what God's intent is. So if you go to Exodus 6 7, the Lord says there, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. You see, one of the ways in which we can see this tension working out, we talked about that tension. This tension that He shall be our God, remember, God is holy. And we shall be his people. We are sinful people. And one of the ways in which this tension is going to be expressed is through the story of the tabernacle. Uh, As a description of the tabernacle, just a brief overview. The tabernacle was a tent, a large sized tent. The tabernacle was the place where the presence of God or the Holy God could dwell even in the midst of his covenantal yet sinful People, It's the place where God could be present to maintain his holiness, even in the midst of sinful people. So we can pick the story in Exodus chapter 25, as Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, where he's gone to get the instructions for the tabernacle and all the things that go in it. Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 and 2. God said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from each man whose heart prompts him to give. Translation, the Israelites were asked for a freewill offering and God spells out the kind of contribution that is required. Contributions like gold, silver, bronze, scarlet yarn, um, acacia wood, olive oil, Etc. And there's a big list mentioned in verses three to seven of the same chap- chapter. And after he mentions this list in verse eight, God says, "Then have them make me a sanctuary, and I will dwell among them." We're not going to get into the details of the tabernacle, as the tabernacle is a big subject in itself. It has so many symbolisms with Jesus Christ. And so in this context and for our passage today, our sermon today, the thing, the key thing to remember is that it is through this portable tabernacle that God camped along with the Israelites in their journey to the promised land. So Moses is now up at Mount Sinai. He's getting the plans for the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the table, the lampstand, all the different parts that go uh, that are part of it, and meanwhile, back at the camp, there is a party going on, isn't there? We are now in uh, coming down to Exodus chapter 32, where Moses is gone for at least 40 days, and the Israelites say and ask, where is Moses? In fact, they say, where is this fellow who brought us out of Egypt? We don't know what has happened to him. So they go to Aaron and they tell him, here's some gold, make us an idol, we will worship that idol. And so they end up making this golden calf and they have this big celebration or revelry party. Of course Moses did not know about that because he was talking to God in Mount Sinai and God in his omniscience knows what's happening in the valley. God is not at all happy. He interrupts and he tells Moses what's going on. Moses comes down and he's appalled with what he sees. And all that has to happen. He has to punish the people. In a sense, it is the other side to Exodus chapter 19 verse 5, where if you obey my voice, God says, you will be my treasured possession. But if you don't obey my voice, then there is going to be punishment. You know, initially, God just wanted to wipe out the nation. He wanted to rebuild the nation through Moses, and Moses pleads with him not to do that. Eventually the sons of Levi, um, who are on God's side, come and they go to the children of Israel and strike down 3,000 people as the initial punishment for their sins. Now here's an analogy I would like to make, and I'm not gonna push this analogy too far, so don't take it to the back. There's a classical difference between, or the external difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. You see, when the old covenant was launched, and that's fresh now for the Israelites, 3000 people were killed. Contrast that to the new covenant. When it was launched, remember on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came, 3,000 people were saved. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul labels this old covenant as the ministry that brought death. And the new covenant as the ministry of the Spirit, which was way more glorious because it brings righteousness and life. I want want you to see, church, what a difference in the covenant. Now, Coming back to the story, 3,000 people were killed, followed by some plagues, which took even more people. But that was not the worst of the punishment. Moses feared a greater punishment. And if you come to Exodus chapter 32, uh, verse 33 and 34, the Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. And the story continues in Exodus chapter 33, verses 1 to 3. Then the Lord says, said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land. I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. Now Note this very carefully. The Lord says, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. You know, the worst of the punishment that Moses really feared is that God is going to withdraw his presence from the nation of Israel because God says, if I visit you, I have to visit punishment on you. I will have to wipe you out because you are stiff-necked people. You know, I want to pause here and I want to record two reflections and some connected applications from what we have been reading so far. Number one, sin is not trivial. Sin is not trivial. The world really trivializes sin, doesn't it? It laughs at sin, it rationalizes sin, and it mocks a holy God. You see, in this passage, you see the contrast. God does not laugh at sin. He does not mock sin. What does he do with sin? He punishes it. He punishes it simply because he is righteous and he is just and he has to deal with it. And I want to ask this question to all of us, including me. Do you and I trivialize sin? What sin are you toying with in the recent past, or maybe even now? What do you and I put in our minds that when we get exposed to entertainment and media that rationalizes sin through cross humor and other worldly philosophies and putting wild things into our systems? What are you rationalizing? Not only are the sins of commission very serious, the sins of omission are serious too. When we have a view that God winks over sin and that he's this loving grandfatherly figure with a beard and that he looks over sin, then my dears and brothers, that is a very warped view of God. You know, J.I. Packer says this, metal images are a result of mental images. May I ask you, what's your view of God? You know, there is this tendency for all humanity, all humanity left to ourselves. We have this uncanny ability to reduce God to manageable terms. We reduce him to sizes that that are compatible for us. And may I encourage us as a church, as people of God, to keep exposing yourself periodically to the attributes of God, so that you and I don't image him into our own likeness or fashion. God is holy. Every sin of commission, every sin of omission is serious and sin is not trivial. Number two, what or whom do you love the most? What or whom do you love the most? The goody or the goody giver? Would you rather have the goodies and keep the goody giver out? Do you want to experience the land flowing with milk and honey minus the one who provided that? This is a very important question to ask to ourselves. Why do you and I follow Jesus? Most of us would answer to be in heaven. Not a wrong answer, but many a time we can miss the purpose in the name of location. You know, John Piper puts this so succinctly and he asked this question and I'll read this out for you. The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you've ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked, And all the leisure activities you've ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you've ever tasted, no human conflict, no natural disasters. And may I add, no pandemics like what we are living today in, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? The psalmist in Psalms 84 echoes this in verse 10. He says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. The psalmist is giving this idea that a single day in the presence of God is worth more than a thousand outside his presence. Examine, my dear brothers and sisters, where you spend your maximum time energy and resources the most. I guarantee you, that's where your treasure is. That's where your heart is. You know, like the Israelites, do you have golden calves in the form of career, spouse, family, ministry, comfort, approval, all those idols that we've been speaking about as a church. It's a reflection of what you desire and love the most. What or whom do you love the most? Moving on. I want to contrast now the children of Israel versus Moses. Moses is an example of someone who continued to obey God, who continued to do what God expects of him and his reward The word is not used there, but you get an idea and you can get it from the context that Moses gets to enjoy the presence of God in a way that no one else does. In Exodus chapter 33, you have two stories that emphasize Moses' enjoyment of the presence of God. And that's our focus this morning. Number one, the first story is the tent of the meeting. Uh, This was a temporary tent where Moses would frequently uh, he would go out of the area where the Israelites camped and he would meet with God in this tent uh, which was a dis- which was some distance away. Uh, God's presence would come down um, and the people would see it from their tents and they would worship. and uh, that was when Moses and God got to talk to each other. They've got to uh, have fellowship with each other and then if you come down to Exodus chapter 33 verse 11. It says, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And in 34, if you read on, you can get this idea that when Moses left the tent of the meeting, his face shone so much that he had to put a veil over it. You see the same affirmation of what God wants for his people? A picture of what God wants more than anything else. For a man to talk face to face to God like a friend. Imagine speaking to the God of the universe, a holy God, like a friend, just like in Genesis chapter 2. Moses was, of course, not the first friend God had. I think there are multiple more references where we get the same picture. Uh, if you read James chapter 2, verses twenty-three, verse 23, it says about Abraham like this. And the scripture was fulfilled. That says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that Moses was a friend of God, Abraham was called a friend of God. Jesus talks about his disciples in the same manner. If you read John chapter 15, 14 and 15, it reads like this, Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. Friends for everything that I learned from my father. Friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Moses was a friend of God. Abraham was called a friend of God. Jesus' disciples, are called friends. And therefore that's true of you and true of me. God's desire for each one of us also is to have fellowship with him like a friend. That is the story of the tent of the meeting. God communing like a friend, that's the temporary tent of meeting. But there's another story in Exodus in in the same chapter that reveals the heart of Moses. And it is the story, and we sang about this in a way, and it is the story of Moses being hidden in the cleft of the rock. This story is asking a question. What ultimately defines the people of God from the rest of the world? What ultimately defines whether you and I are a friend of God? See, what's happening is that Moses, in the back of his mind, is still really concerned that God will not go with them. And you can see this concern regarding this expressed from Exodus chapter 33. So we're going to read a a few verses, Exodus chapter 33, uh, verse 12 onwards. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. In other words, Moses is saying, if you're not going to go, I don't know who is going. In verse 13, he says, if you're pleased with me, Moses says, if you're pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Do you see how Moses is pushing his boundaries politely and stating things in confidence? He's saying they are your people too, God. Of course, Moses, uh, the Lord listens to all of that in verse 14. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. So we see that God comes to Moses, that his presence will stay. But Moses does not stop there. And I want us to watch this, 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 this kind of continuing trend. He he wants to continue to emphasize to God that it is important that his presence stays with them. So he continues the discussion in verse 15. then Moses said to him, the Lord, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. You see that reflection? He's saying, if you don't, if, if you're not going to go with us, I don't want to go to Canaan. I don't want to go to the promised land. I would rather be in your presence than in a land flowing with milk and honey, minus your presence. So you can see this push in 16 and 17, in the same chapter, Moses says, how will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people, unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people, sorry, from all the other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you asked, because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. So here is a reflection question that we need to think about as children of God. What differentiates you and I from others, you know, contrast these two sets of examples, Exhibit A the children of Israel. Exhibit B, Moses. You know, the Jews had all the kind of religious traditions. They are identified or marked so much by so many laws that they follow. The Jews have all of these laws and traditions from scripture that define who they are. Don't get me wrong, Moses too had the laws and traditions. He had the religious rituals to go through. But that was not which was most important to Moses. Moses knew what was very important. That What would separate out the people of God from all the others was not something external, it was something internal. It was the very presence of God. And you can sense that Moses' hunger is not about more loss. He wanted to know Yahweh more And I was just thinking, what else does Moses need to see? I mean, this guy has seen the burning bush, the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the provisions of water from the rock we read today, the manna, the quails, the tent of meeting, the dense clouds that descended on the mountains, the thunder, the lightning, all the fireworks. And I am wondering what else is there to experience further about God. Do you see that? Do you see that Moses is not satisfied? He wants to know God more, even though he's exposed much to God so far. And you can see if you read in verse 18 to 23, it reads like this: Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. Show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. And the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock and I'll cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I'll remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. We saw that vision which Nitin, Brother Nitin read out for us in Exodus chapter 34, the vision of this glorious God. How else could one respond to such a glorious vision of God other than how Moses does it? In Exodus chapter 34, verse 8 to 9, it reads, Moses bowed down to the ground at once and worshipped. And he said, This, O Lord, if I found favor in your eyes, he said, Then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. You at know, the deepest level, the people of God, the friends of God are those who enjoy the very presence of God. Doctrine is important. Holiness is important. But what is lying at the core of all of this is Moses' desire to be in the presence of God, face to face, talking with him, wanting to know him more. Paul says the same thing in different words in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And he says, and we all with unveiled faces reflecting the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, which is from the Lord who is the Spirit. You hear it over and over again. In Romans 8, that we are defined as people in whom the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Christ Holy Spirit dwells. We should be defined as people of God in whom the presence of God or the Spirit of God dwells. My dear brothers and sisters, don't ever miss the order. The order is important. It is always internal that produces external change. Christ is the primary goal and transformation is the result, it's a net effect of what's going on inside. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Why? He created them to be present with his creation and to have fellowship with us as friends. But because he is holy and we are sinful, something special had to happen to reduce that gap. And that's something special for Moses was the temporary tent of meeting. That's something special for the children of Israel in the desert was the tabernacle. That was a place where God's holy presence could dwell even in the midst of sinful people. For you and me, uh, that's something special is the person of Jesus Christ whom we celebrated and worshiped this morning together. John 1, 14, it says, the word became flesh, that is Jesus became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. That Jesus was the tabernacle, that he was the very presence of God in our midst. You know, someday you and I, who are disciples of Jesus Christ, will also be able to see him face to face, to walk hand in hand and to to talk directly with him. Someday, we'll be able to enjoy his presence in an unmediated way. And I trust that we are all looking forward to that. And while we are here on, on this earth, the journey will be to continue to know him more and more. May I plead with you, never be satisfied. Never be satisfied with whatever you know I know many of us have, been, have gone through Sunday schools and we know some of these stories at the back of our hands, but there is more to learn and discover about our father, about God who's inexhaustible. There is so much to learn and we can continue to pray and have this attitude that Moses had to know him more. In summary, what can we pick from our session or learning today? Question to ask each one of us is, are you a religious person? Somebody who's defined by the external or are you a friend of God? Do only external things define you, even if they are good external things? Or are you first and foremost a person in whom the spirit of the living God lives? And it is the spirit of the living God that works in our lives, changing our hearts and changing our minds and changing our behavior. And this is how he is our God and we are his people by the presence of God that dwells inside of us. If that is not true of any of you listening to me this morning, I would encourage you to cry out like Moses, to admit that you are a stiff necked person, sinful, you're separate from God. And that you have no hope and you cry out to God to pardon your sin because there's nothing you can do about your sin. Only Jesus on the cross cares for your sin. And you believe that he's paid for the penalty of your sin on the cross. You must believe it and receive it by faith. And once you have done that, commit your life to him to become his treasured possession to be God's inheritance. That is the story of the tabernacle. Shall we pray? Dear Lord Jesus, we want to thank you, for you, for your word, for your redemptive plan that has happened across history. We want to thank you that your desire is to commune with us like a friend, we want to thank you that you want to spend time with us. And many a time, Lord, we, we admit, we confess. We are more bothered about how we look on the external and how our behavior is on the external. And we have done and played all those games. We admit to you, Father, we need you. We want to thank you that it is our privilege that you, a holy God, would spend time with us and would long to commune with us. Lord, we have missed So many times this mark. Lord God, we want to pray, Lord, that we would be marked and defined by your spirit that indwells in us. And we pray that we would cooperate with your Holy Spirit who is working in us and transforming our hearts and in our minds and that we would continue to enjoy you. We pray for a hunger to know you more, to love you more. For on our own, we are... Having the ability to reduce you to our terms. We, have, we are sorry for the golden calves that we have in our lives. Lord Jesus, we need you. We need you all the more. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who's tabernacled among us. We want to thank you, O Lord, for your presence in us. We want to thank you for the Holy Spirit who sealed until the day of redemption. We want to thank you that this is your work and it's a great privilege and an honor to be part of that story. Thank you. We are precious to you. We are your treasured possession. Continue to lead us and guide us for we ask all of these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen.